0: So I'm going to ask uh, Jerry Pullman to come. He's going to be reading from Hebrews 13, verse 8 to 16. Hebrews 13, verse 8 to 16. Uh, Jerry, read for us today. Thank you.
1: Brothers and sisters, listen to the word of the Lord. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to god that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to god
0: jerry thank you for reading so much i want if you keep your Bibles like open, I want to start right there in Hebrews 13, 8. That strong affirmation that we just heard. That Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's such a fixed reference point. So the world is changing, has changed, constantly changing. And yet there's this fixed reference point of Jesus Christ... Who doesn't change? He has not changed in the past. He does not change now. He will never change in the future. And that reference point is so important because you see the verse immediately following that 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 definitely gives us a window into something we need to be on guard against. Because while Jesus does not change, the warning here to be on guard is do not be led away By diverse, by changing or diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. So, there are, according to the writer of Hebrews, we would certainly say, absolutely, there are strange and diverse teachings out there. So, in this case, what it seems like it primarily referred to. some teachings that would really try to mix some things particularly related to food so it makes sense that i mean it's a book to the hebrews i mean certainly gentiles well but but with a hebrew background for most of the original readers and so they're reading this with all sorts of laws and regulations on food in the old covenant and so it seemed like when the new covenant came there There was a potential, there was a danger, maybe there was a reality of people trying to take aspects of the new covenant, which Jesus initiated with his blood, and to try to kind of merge those with some of the old food regulations, to kind of mix those up. And the writer of Hebrews is calling our attention to here that that these things don't mix. Be on guard against anything that is standing in the place of grace. So when you get to something that is grace plus something, this is what I think he's warning about. And then he makes this strong statement. He draws this conclusion. It is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. There's strength that comes through the grace of Jesus. The grace of Jesus so, so we know grace, but let me just remind us once again, because I, I don't know that we can remind ourselves of this too often. Grace is something you don't deserve, you didn't earn. You can't work hard enough to receive grace. That, it's, a, it's different from that. It is a gift. It's God's unconditioned kindness, his love for us. It's something you receive, undeserved kindness, unconditioned love something that comes through the cross. You, you don't kind of the cross plus something. It's, it's God's grace coming to us through the cross. It's God's grace coming to us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's God's grace coming to us as we receive the Holy Spirit. All these are things we didn't earn, we didn't deserve. We didn't work our way into deserving the cross, deserving the Spirit residing in us. It's a gift. And I find it seems counterintuitive, but it, it's sometimes hard for us to accept grace. I know that for a couple reasons. There's just this kind of inward bent to go, well, surely I got to earn it. Which is why I think, I mean, there, there are probably many in this group, in this congregation that you grew up in some sort of legalistic version of Christianity where if you followed rules and it seemed like there were more and more rules, more and more regulations, more and more laws to keep, and if you followed all of them, then and only then would you actually be strong, a strong Christian. But wait a minute, this says you're strengthened not by rule-keeping and following all the laws, but you're strengthened by grace. And if you come from that If you come to that regulated background to like the most minute, minute detail, this is a corrective. You don't need more laws and more rules to be strengthened in your heart. I like the way one writer said you need gospel plus safety and community plus time. That's grace. So again, we kind of think, well, there's another way I can be strong by keeping all these rules. But I find, like you may not be so inclined toward a harsh legalism with all these ridiculous rules that somewhere someone made up decades ago, maybe centuries ago. But I actually find, again, this idea of we need to earn something, it's still very stubborn. Often I'm finding that, while it may not be harsh legalistic rules, Humans are just very good at making up rules that we think will make us okay. I know this even the other day. I was uh, meeting someone at the food court at the mall and I walked into Barnes & Noble, went to the self-help section, and it's just interesting by reading titles and subtitles. So these books, I don't know that anybody would classify them as legalistic, but man, they had all kinds of religious language. Here's what you need to be cleansed. Here's what you need for your soul to be okay. Here's what you need to experience love and to experience, like, I mean, these are words that the Bible uses. These are words, these are concepts that the Bible is, that has something to say in those areas, and yet it felt like there was no grace attached to this. As you read by this celebrity who has this kind of way of life, this path of life to follow, that if you follow this, it's kind of soft rules, but it's still rules. That if you follow this, if you do this, if you implement this into your life, if you do this, then, then you'll actually really be able to be comfortable and you'll feel good about yourself. It's a path, it's a path of salvation offered with no grace attached, other than some cheap grace that says, ah, oh, just don't worry about it. But here's the deal, like, we can't just do that. Our, our heart, the, the guilt will rise up and it's not enough to just pretend it never happened. That's why I think even in Hebrews it says, the idea of regulations, whether it be food or you name it, it, it acts like it'll benefit you if I keep the rules. But it's of no benefit. What actually strengthens the heart Is not a if you do this, then this will happen. What strengthens the heart is grace. And the fact is, grace actually tells you the truth about sin, your sin, my sin, and it tells you the truth about holiness. So it's not as if I just get to play a grace card and kind of move around holiness or sin actually as Sean was leading us in a prayer of confession a few moments ago, it just, I mean I'm having to like affirm all the things that he's confessing with us and for us. It's like yeah Lord forgive this, forgive this, forgive this. It doesn't like bypass those it looks those straight in the eye and yet it reminds us well I'll never meet the perfect standard of God's holiness. That's no room for me to minimize or excuse or blame shift or play the victim as if everything was done to me. No, I can look at my own sin and say, that's who I am, and that's why I need grace. There's something about that that strengthens our heart. Repentance puts you in the need to receive something from God, puts you in the place where you've got to have God do something for you you can't do for yourself. Grace will tell you the truth about the demands of discipleship, It tells us the truth. It strengthens us by telling us the truth about the demands of discipleship. The only response to everything we've received is is giving everything I have. It doesn't minimize that. It actually says, you're not your own. You're bought with a price. But there's freedom and there's strength in knowing this that God, the Holy Spirit, goes to work in us and he's, he's committed to changing us. We didn't deserve his work in our lives. Taking those parts of us that are just frankly a pain to deal with and beginning to change those slowly but surely. Making us more and more like Jesus. We didn't earn that, but it's a gift. And grace lets us receive all the demands of discipleship. And it strengthens us, not by following rules or regulations. And grace reminds us, if we're going to get help, it's going to have to be looking outside of ourselves. It seems like there's a shortcut. Like, it's a shortcut where we go, no, no, we'll just believe in ourselves a little more, and that'll make things better. Or even one of the, I think the subtitles of the book, one of the books I saw this week was, like, find your own path which sounds great, except for what if the path you find is a total dead end? What if you're 5% sure this path could lead to eternal punishment? But 95% sure, you don't know. I mean, are you willing, are you willing to just look inside and go, I think I'm going to determine truth, I'm going to determine my path, I'm going to believe in myself more, and that's going to be the pathway to my salvation. And there's no grace in that. There's no gift in that. I mean, I can just make a bunch of stuff up and I could be wrong about all the stuff I made up. But grace calls us to look look somewhere outside of ourselves to Jesus Christ, what he's done. And our hearts are strengthened. You get that imagery of strengthen. I mean, it's when uh, when you're doing physical therapy and you put just enough tension and pressure on something that it, it does get stronger. It breaks some things down, but over time it builds back stronger and stronger and stronger. It's going to the weight room and pushing to the limit, but then getting stronger and stronger and stronger as things are broken down. And I do, I do find that grace has a way of breaking us down. I mean, for all the things I think I could do, all the things I think I have earned, all the ways I'm, I'm very, very proud of myself, grace has a way of just breaking all those things down and then rebuilding and saying, Curtis, you need grace. You need a gift. You need something that you, for all of your good attempts, you need something more than you could earn. And grace strengthens us. It strengthens us to fight sin it strengthens us to have hope in suffering. And you might even find yourself floundering in guilt. And grace may be such a foreign concept, like receiving a gift of forgiveness and pardon. And there's something about even, I think one of the reasons why we meet together, like weekly, God's design in that, is that, okay, we feel guilt, and we feel like weighted down by that guilt, and here we come together, We hear a prayer confession and we then sing a song like we did a moment ago. Jesus paid it all. And then again, our hearts get stronger because we realize, as Paul said, he didn't just pay for 75% or just the big stuff, but he paid it all. Grace strengthens us. I hope you know that. And so even as we go to the Lord's Supper, in, in a few moments, we'll be reminded of God's grace. We'll receive it. We won't like trot out our good works for the week, and then okay, you get to receive it because you did enough good. To do. That's not the way. It's not the premise. So there is strength that comes from the grace of Jesus. But let's keep reading the passage because verse ten builds on this and says we have an altar. Let's talk about grace. We've received an altar, and the priests who served the tent—they have no right to eat. The, the old covenant priests, like they don't get to come to this altar because this altar is in the new covenant. And then it says the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. Take note of that word, outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. If one conclusion is that we should find strength in the grace of Jesus. I think another conclusion we have to draw from this passage is there's a stigma attached to the death of Jesus. There is a stigma attached to the death of Jesus. A stigma. Which attention definition of a stigma is that mark of disgrace. A mark of disgrace that is associated with a A circumstance or a quality or a person where everybody says, that is no good. We have no time for that. A stigma. And this passage is telling us when it says dying outside the camp or suffering outside the gate, it's telling us something of the stigma attached to the cross of Jesus. It actually takes us to, as Hebrews does pretty regularly, it takes us back to the Old Testament, takes us back even to the book of Leviticus, Leviticus 16. An annual ritual that was very, very bloody. It was called the Day of Atonement. And on this annual ritual, again, a very, very bloody day, the camp had to be ritually clean. There was a, a camp. So there were kind of markers of this is inside the camp and outside the camp. The camp had to be clean. So this is the symbolism. An animal would be sacrificed. They would collect the blood from the animal. And they would take the blood from the animal in this, in this ritual, in this symbolic ritual, and they would sprinkle it on the altar. And it was a way of saying this area is clean. So the animal, it, it's a substitute, right? The animal is substituting for the people. That's a symbolic gesture. That's a payment for sin. The people wouldn't die because there was an animal substitute that was helping prepare us for the Lamb of God who would come in, in person. But the dead animal would shed its blood. But then did you see it there in verse 11? The body of that animal would then be taken outside the camp. Outside the camp, what is the marker there? Well, outside the camp, everything is unclean. It's not clean there. There's no ritual purity there. As a matter of fact, outside the camp is where the Gentiles, the people who were not people of God were, outside the camp. And then they would take and burn the body there. The gesture was trying to capture two things, right? Atonement's been made, so there's ritual cleansing for the people inside the camp, but outside the camp is a place of death and judgment and defilement and uncleanness. And that's the imagery in mine in verse 12 when it says, you know what happened to Jesus? He suffered outside the camp. Which is telling us, like, he went outside the city walls, outside the gate, and suffered there. Which is not so subtle. I mean, we, we certainly have ways of making the cross beautiful, and I understand that. I, I understand why we would have pictures and why we would have even jewelry and why that would be very meaningful. I understand that. It shouldn't prevent us from recognizing that there was much stigma and shame attached to a cross. And Jesus' cross was something that they said, we, we're not even going to do this in the city gates. You don't belong here. You belong out there where the unclean people are, where the Gentiles are, where, where the defiled things are, where the area of death is. That's where you belong. You don't even deserve to die inside the city gates. You and your kind belong outside. That's what's being said by Jesus suffering outside the gate. You're not worthy, you're not welcome to be here. As Isaiah 53 says, he was a man despised and rejected. So much shame attached there. But think about it, as Jesus goes and suffers outside the gate, you know who's there? We are. We are with our sin. We are the unclean. We are the ones that aren't going to be able to make our way to God. We are the ones who don't have a perfect track record. We are the ones that are filled with sin. And Jesus suffers out there and it's, he identifies with you. Not at your best. He identifies with you at your worst. So John 19 tells us that he died on Golgotha, a place outside the gates. And he dies there and identifies with us as sinners. Those outside the camp, they're they're not going to be righteous They're not going to be ceremonially clean. They're not the ones fulfilling the law. And Jesus goes and dies there. And in this act of like double symbolism, he pours out his blood, which actually the blood that he sheds purifies us and makes us worthy to enter his presence. Not just an earthly sanctuary, but the heavenly one, his presence for eternity. And there we are. And Jesus is there with us. We benefit from the sacrifice of Christ. So it tells us, like, this is where Christ is. And Hebrews would remind you, this isn't something that we remind ourselves happened just in the past, and wasn't that a heroic, loving gesture in the past. It's something that has a meaning this morning. I mean, it has a meaning and relevance today, and it will for eternity. Why is that? Because the sacrifice of Jesus where he hung outside and shed his blood to bring us inside, that has a permanent effect. He's permanently our high priest living this morning, ready to make men and women clean today. There's permanent access to heaven. What do we do with this stigma though? What do we do with the fact that Jesus was put outside, and on that Good Friday, which was a dark Friday, no one's clapping, no one's applauding, and lots of people are mocking. What do we do with the stigma attached to Jesus? I think the passage points us to a couple answers. The first answer I would give is we should welcome being attached to Jesus' stigma. I don't say that lightly. But verse 12 says, therefore, let us go, not just outside the camp, right? But it says, let us go to him. So the high priority is wherever Jesus is, if that means we bear reproach, then so be it. We want to be with Jesus. We value him so much. We don't just relish being outsiders, but we do love him. And because he identified with us, we want to be identified with him. We don't have a victim complex. We don't have a martyr complex. We just want to be where Jesus is. And if that means bearing reproach like he did, I mean, let's face it, his suffering will never be equaled. It was unique. It accomplished redemption for all those who will believe. But we would endure reproach with him if people didn't like him, crucified him. How do we expect that? Everybody would like us, and our walk with Jesus. We shouldn't expect that. That's why 1 Peter says this in 1 Peter 2, you were called to suffer because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. I don't know where it costs you to be a Christian. I mean, maybe it doesn't actually, maybe it doesn't cost you much because lots of your life is with Christians. But I have to guess for some of you, for many of you, There are places where you enter that the fact that you're a Christian does bring a stigma. The fact that you follow the teachings of Jesus. The fact that you see him as the way, the truth, the life. The fact that he has authority to speak over every area of your life. It might be at your school. Even elementary, middle, or high school. College. It might be in your family there's a stigma attached to you following Jesus and him being Lord of your life it may be that you're treated as is dangerous different weird strange maybe maybe there are personal slights maybe others get promotions you get excluded as a matter of fact if you take all things in, into account most of the followers of Jesus for all time have known this and it's not fun and no one wants no one wants to be stigmatized. No one wants that. But this tells us, if you love Jesus, like let us go to Him, wherever He is, and if that means if that means living out our faith in Jesus Christ means some things don't go well for us, then we begin to ask the question: like, we do have a long term view, right? For here we have no lasting city. This is temporary. Your time at that place of work, with that bus, with that coworker, that family. I mean, this is all temporary, but we, there is something that endures. There is a city to come, and that's going to last for a long time. So, is there a way where you remind yourself, okay, I can, I can endure a stigma now with Jesus. Not just because I'm a jerk, but I, I, I want to endure a stigma because I am with Jesus, and I can endure that now because here we have no last. This is only temporary. And our values here's what we're living for, not the values of this age. We're not trying to keep in step with every advertising campaign and everything that the world and social media would say, you're amazing, this is is what everybody in the world thinks. We're not trying, that's never been our goal. We don't mind being out of step at times. Because our community is the people of God. Our community, it's not just made up of the, the cool people and the pretty people. Our community are those that like, We're going to Jesus too. If that identifies us and stigmatizes us, then so be it. Our security is not here on this earth. Again, that's probably easy to say on a Sunday morning. And I I pray pretty regularly for what many of you have to live Monday to Saturday, where that stigma does cost. But this tells us, like, let us go to him. Let us go to him. We welcome being attached to Jesus' stigma, and we also worship in ways that God is pleased with. We worship in ways that are pleasing to God. I love the language of verse 15 and 16 there because it does like bring in all this sacrifice imagery, but this is what we know. We're not offering any sacrifices to somehow gain eternal approval before God to pay for our sins. We're not offering those sacrifices. So all the sacrifices we bring now are sacrifices of gratitude. He's paid the ultimate sacrifice. So everything in that wake now is just a sacrifice of praise. Even even the verse says, through him, let us continually offer this sacrifice of praise. The fruit of our lips, like acknowledging him, professing him. So we do that every Sunday regularly. And the reason why we can continually offer this sacrifice of praise where we can like Like, yeah, it literally comes from our lips that we are following Jesus. I believe in God the Father. I I mean, we are saying these things with our lips the reason why we can do this. Continually is because his goodness is continual, his faithfulness is continual, his grace is continual. That will never stop. Him being our mediator, him being our security and our hope and our refuge, that's never gonna stop. So yeah, we have every reason in the world to wake up today, tomorrow, the next day, the next day, and for eternity no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. It happens in the gathering, it happens as we have opportunity outside the gathering. They say, we'll continually offer a sacrifice of praise. But it's not just like we'll be big talkers about this, right? And offer a sacrifice of praise. But notice how it presses into not just our speech, not just like our own Like pious words, but it actually presses down into our actions. So then let us not neglect to do good and share what we have. So also as a part of the sacrifice we bring to God, not to pay for our sins, but out of out of thanksgiving, we think of tangible ways to do good, to express our concern for others. And church, you're so good at that. And let's keep doing that. Let's keep thinking of ways where we can be helpful. What can I do? How can I serve? Because in the end, Hebrews says that's pleasing to God. Not as a payment for sin, but a sign that that grace has gone to work in your life. And we share what we have. We don't have the vantage point, the viewpoint that, like, it's all mine. I'm just going to hoard everything that we have. We have a very different vantage point. It's like, look at what God has given me. Do I have any that I can share? Is there someone in need? Have I been given more than I need to help take care of someone who needs something? Different seasons of life are going to give you different opportunities. The impulse here is like, but if I have it to share, should I think of, should I pray? Could I ask God this week, show me where I can share what I have? Are there any ways? I think that would be a prayer God would love to answer. Show me ways in which I can share what I have. Show me how I can bring deeds of love. I'm going to ask our worship team to come up because when you, and we're going to sing and then we'll, we'll sing a verse and a chorus and then we'll go into our time of communion. When we put all this together, you're going to, you're going to appreciate like our lives aren't regulated by, by rules and, and regulations and law keeping, but we are strengthened by grace. And so even as we receive the bread and the juice in a moment, we're going to be saying once again, we've received Grace. And then we also have been brought into this place where God opens the door for us to fellowship and offer pleasing sacrifices to him. Once again, we're going to identify as if if Jesus is disgraced, if there's a stigma attached to him, well, then we're still with Jesus. We still are with him.